0: To learn more about CODE, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E-Health.com, or email CODE directly at Partnerships at CodeHealth.com.
1: I increasingly think there is a real opportunity to give a portion of cancer care at home, not only with telemedicine visits, but some of the infusions. Uh, and injections that are given to treat cancer can be administered at home as well.
0: Opportunities in Oncology, today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto. Today I'm talking with Andrew Hurtler, the Chief Medical Officer at New Century Health. He was on our podcast in 2020 discussing the risk of deferred screenings and opportunities in oncology for telehealth today we'll have updates on those topics and also discuss how workforce shortages will come into play later we'll have some exciting news about our upcoming annual conference in denver but before we get to all that let's check in with hfma senior editor nick hutt and hfma policy director sean stack to find out what's happening in healthcare finance news
2: Hello, everybody. If you're interested in healthcare policy at all, MedPAC's annual report to Congress is really a trove of policy insights and and really just a roadmap for Medicare payment policy. They just released this year's report within the last couple of weeks. And if you work for a hospital or health system, probably the key point was that MedPAC recommends not taking the pandemic into account when calculating the payment update for inpatient and outpatient services in the upcoming year, which is 2023. So that leaves basically the regular statutory update, which right now is projected to be a 2.5% increase for inpatient services and 2% on the outpatient side. That's subject to change due to various economic factors, but I wouldn't expect it to change by more than a few tenths of a percentage point. And furthermore, MedPAC's guidance isn't gospel. There's room for CMS to implement any sort of update that it sees fit. But my guess is they'll more or less adhere to the recommendation. So, Sean, what do you make of that And in, in terms of uh, some of the data that went into that recommendation?
3: Nick, the annual March report to Congress, because of, of standard data lags, the most recent completed data the report is based on is recommending payment adequacy indicators from 2020. And in some of those cases, they utilize data from 2021, like interim claim data, information on facility closures and beneficiary survey data. But for the most part, they're using adequacy indicators from 2020. Unlike the inpatient outpatient payment system adjustments that you're just you're just talking about, that yes, they are not final yet. The commission did not recommend an update to the physician or other healthcare professional fee schedule or the ambulatory surgical center fee for service payment system. So it's gonna be very interesting to see the reactions to that decision and to see what moves forward. But keep in mind, clinicians are eligible for annual performance-based payment adjustments through Medicare's merit-based incentive payment system, or their annual bonus worth 5% of their Medicare professional services payments through the alternative payment models. So, kind of begs to differ if if they're focusing on these alternative payment models to get more physicians in there to, you know, kind of push them toward that scope of service for payment increases.
2: Yeah, thanks for that, Sean. That's, that's great insight on the physician side. I do see the logic to Medpack's stance in terms of if you try to incorporate all these pandemic-related factors into an annual update, you kind of open a Pandora's box where just the whole process of implementing the update becomes kind of unwieldy and maybe less than scientific. So I get where they're coming from in terms of preferably using other payment mechanisms to address any financial distress that hospitals may be experiencing. Now, it's unclear what those mechanisms might be, at least in the short term, now that the Provider Relief Fund is out of money. But more importantly, I think, is that the recommendation, while it makes sense in theory, it just might not match the reality on the ground, given that, like you explained, 2020 data, for the most part, is used to determine the market basket that sets 2023 payments. And a market basket, for those who don't know, just refers to pretty much all the costs of providing care, excluding non-operating costs. And it guides CMS in determining how hospitals should be compensated for providing healthcare. So all the inflation, especially in wages that has taken place since 2020, is probably not going to be accounted for in that price update. And therefore, in the payment update, that wouldn't happen until 2024. So some hospitals could be left in the lurch, financially speaking. Anything to add to that, Sean? I just threw a lot of dry, convoluted information at our listeners. Any context to be added there?
3: No, I agree with you, Nick. I think some hospitals are going to be left in the lurch during that period of time. Um, one of the things that I peeled away from from the MedPAC report and I thought was very interesting and I think folks really need to watch closely and listen to is um, the numbers on telehealth services and how much they grew in 2020. They accounted for 5% of the fee-for-service spending compared to only 1% in 2019. So this is not a surprise to anyone, and I'm sure it's not a surprise to Medicare or MedPAC, but the recommendation was made to the secretary to require physicians and other healthcare professionals and home health agencies and hospices to start providing more information related to telehealth. So it looks like MedPAC might be telling Medicare that they need to gear up for maybe closely looking at telehealth services, how they're being used, and if there's any you know, undiscretionary use of those services right now. For
2: sure. And the telehealth waivers that CMS handed down at the beginning of the pandemic are are in place for five months after the expiration of the public health emergency, which is likely to be in July. But certainly telehealth is the the stage is being set for telehealth to become a permanent part of the payment landscape, much more so than it currently is. I know you wanted to make a point about outpatient dialysis payments. What uh, should listeners know about those?
3: So under current law, the Medicare fee for service based payment rate for dialysis services is projected to increase by one point two percent. I'm not saying that this is a bad thing, but I am a little surprised. MedPAC did mention, you know, the push and the focus on home dialysis or peritoneal dialysis being one of the center focuses in this area. But i really think that we need to see MedPAC and Medicare step up their insight over the renal care that's being provided to its Medicare patients. This is one of the most costly areas or service lines for Medicare at at this current time and has been for years. And we need to see more happen here to control quality and preventative renal failure care. So I think that's something that a lot of us have high expectations for in the policy field. And as we know, The Medicare trustee fund is, the hospital insurance trust fund is becoming depleted very quickly as we've heard over the last, what, 10 years, and is stated to become insolvent either by 2026 or Congress or the CBO is saying it's gonna be insolvency by 2027. So we are up against quite a bit bit of crunch here to find additional dollars, either through additional Medicare um, payroll tax, going from, I think they're estimating from 2.9% to 3.7% or a significant reduction of 18% in Medicare payments. So a lot to be concerned about here coming up on the next three or four years. No doubt. That absolutely bears
2: watching. As do the proposed rules for the various prospective payment systems. They're likely to start dropping uh, especially with the IPPS rule, maybe around late April. And we'll definitely be keeping you all up to date at hfma.org slash news.
0: The sharp decline in cancer screenings at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic concerned many people in the healthcare industry. And although there has been somewhat of a rebound, the numbers aren't what they were before the pandemic. Additional challenges like workforce shortages make this a difficult time for patients and healthcare organizations, particularly in oncology. But according to my guest today, it's also a time of great opportunity. Andrew Hertler is the chief medical officer of New Century Health. He was also a practicing oncologist for 30 years, so he's seen cancer care from a few sides. This is his second time on our podcast, so we started out with a quick update on our last conversation. In October, 2020, you were on our podcast and I will share a link in the show notes for anyone who didn't listen or who might wanna go back and listen again. We were talking about the risks being presented with the pandemic regarding delayed cancer screenings. Now, back then, again, it was fall of 2020. We were just starting to talk about it, but it's borne out that patients who put off their screenings ended up coming into the system later with cancers that had advanced. And in that interview, you pointed out the worst case scenario, which is a patient who had a curable cancer wouldn't find out about that cancer until it was incurable. So I'd like to know your thoughts on where do we stand now with diagnoses and how many people are actually coming back to get those screenings?
1: Well, those are, are very good points. And unfortunately, yes, uh, the predictions have come into reality. We know that, that screenings uh, lagged tremendously uh, that in the period uh, since the real onset of COVID in early 2020, uh, new cancer diagnoses uh, declined by, in various studies, 13 to 23 percent versus the pre-COVID area. Now, these people didn't just stop developing cancer. Uh, They weren't diagnosed. And we know that there's been a good deal of progress with decreased cancer deaths uh, over the last uh, two decades. We're very proud of that fact. And there were numerous contributing factors, but certainly one very important factor was a widespread screening and earlier diagnoses. And we know that screening fell uh, in breast cancer, cervical cancer, colon cancer, as much as 80 to 90% during the height of the pandemic. Unfortunately, those screenings continue to lag. Uh, we're still 13% below our historical average in screenings uh, in 2021. People are coming back. New cancer diagnoses are coming back to baseline, though in our own experience at New Century Health, we're still just slightly below our, our pre-COVID baseline. But the diagnoses that are coming in are um, showing a bit more advanced stages. and. People who had disease that might have been curable very early stage and not spread at all are now uh, presenting with more um, widespread cancers. And this is the true tragedy. And uh, unfortunately, there have been some projections, for instance, in breast cancer, as one example, um, it's been estimated that there will be over 2,400 excess deaths uh, due to breast cancer presenting in more uh, advanced stages. So truly a a tragedy. And we still need to work to get the screening back to baseline.
0: What do you think is the way forward with that? Um, Is it just kind of starting over and encouraging people to come back and get those screenings?
1: I think that's a part of it. There are some other competing complications. One is simply uh, availability of screening in that these all of these screening centers say for mammograms have a certain capacity to limit. There's only so many you can do a day, uh, and literally uh, getting access to the screening is challenging to catch up on all those that weren't done. And perhaps some never will be caught up, people will just put off that screening completely. There also may be some reticence. Of people to go into healthcare facilities. Unfortunately, some of the people with the greatest delays in screening are those who come from minorities, are socioeconomically disadvantaged. So we may need to not only encourage people to go back and get the screening, but make it more available. Even think about mobile screening programs, increased availability, going into neighborhoods so people don't have to travel uh, to healthcare facilities. It may take more than just simply saying, let's get the message out and have people come back for screening.
0: We also talked in that interview back in 2020 about opportunities to take patients out of medical offices and treat them in their homes. And there's been a lot of movement in the last few years around hospital at home models for acute care, as well as advancements in technology like remote monitoring for patients with chronic conditions like diabetes or COPD. And in that interview, we spoke about some opportunities in oncology to keep patients whose immune systems are suppressed away from other people, but still getting the treatment they need, not to mention keeping them at home where they might be more comfortable. Where do you see the biggest opportunities? And do you think the payment pieces will fall into place to ensure these opportunities are viable and possible? I
1: increasingly think there is a real opportunity to give a portion of cancer care at home, not only with telemedicine visits, but some of the infusions uh, and injections that are given to treat cancer can be administered at home as well. Now, not all medications uh, should be given uh, at home. There's some that need more monitoring, more availability of emergency treatment should it be necessary, then one would feel comfortable giving uh, medications at home. But many of them, including some of the innovative and groundbreaking drugs, can safely be given At home, there have been a few pilots uh, and a few places where this is being done. There's the obvious advantage you spoke of in terms of decreasing exposure to other patients. When you go into a chemotherapy treatment facility, you're sitting in a room with numerous other patients. Patients getting treated for cancer do have suppressed immune systems from the chemotherapy. So a, a huge argument, particularly during a pandemic for keeping patients at home. However, it's proven incredibly popular with patients. There are some regulatory hurdles that would need to be cleared in terms of what's covered by, say, Medicare and what isn't, and what your status has to be to receive home therapy. There have been certain stipulations in the past that you have to be homebound to receive home care. But assuming we can get around some of these uh, administrative barriers, I believe there's a real uh, opportunity here.
0: So as we're talking about changing the way that we deliver care to patients with cancer, we also have to talk about the issue of manpower. I found information going back to 2007, but it might go back even longer, uh, that experts were predicting a growing need for oncologists and a dwindling oncologist's workforce And that was long before the pandemic. So today, we're not only seeing these predictions from back then come true, but they're exacerbated because of the pandemic and all of the workforce issues that we've seen because of it. We have serious shortages of all types of healthcare workers. Looking at models like home care for cancer, we're changing the way we deliver that care. We're going to need to change the way our people deliver that care. So what's your perspective here? What is our way forward with making good use of the people we have and delivering care efficiently?
1: Well, you're absolutely correct. Uh, In all the numbers you cited, there has been a long projected workforce shortage uh, of oncologists due to an aging median age of oncologists' retirements, and it's all been exacerbated uh, by COVID-19. I have not seen statistics distinctly uh, about oncology, but I know the healthcare workforce fell, I think, three and a half percent from February 20 to February 2021. And I know, uh, anecdotally, uh, many oncologists were getting near the point where they were thinking of retiring and the pandemic was enough to say, that's it for me, Uh, I'm leaving. So there is a shortage. It takes a long time to train an oncologist. So there's no immediate solution of simply uh, encouraging people and and training more oncologists. And the answer, as you suggested, is going to rely on how can we be more efficient? And though I don't have an answer, I have a a number of ideas uh, of things that I, I believe are almost going to have to take place. Traditionally, the traditional model uh, as an oncologist, and I practiced this many years myself, was that you got up every day and you went to the hospital and saw your patients in the hospital. And then you went to the office and you saw every patient yourself every time they came in. Uh, You'd get on that treadmill and you'd run as hard as, as you could. And as one person, you basically, you might have partners, but really what you had was a, a group of doctors who shared overhead. It was not a team approach. And I think first and foremost, we have to develop much more of a, a team approach. And we're already seeing this uh, to a certain extent, the use of hospitalists to take care of people in the hospital. So you don't need to go in, into the hospital Oncologists are going to need to realize that they cannot see every patient every time they come in themselves. They're going to have to be willing to and find uh, physician assistants and nurse practitioners. And while the oncologist will still have to develop the treatment plan and use their expertise, use what they were trained for to devise those individual treatment plans, the execution and delivery of that care is going to have to be supervised to a large extent by physician assistants, by nurse practitioners, where they may see the patients when they come in for each treatment. And instead of seeing the patient every second or third week, the oncologist may only weigh in halfway through the therapy and again at the completion just to make sure that the outcomes are what was expected so that you can use the oncologist for what we are most trained to do, which is to devise and oversee uh, the treatment plans, but not necessarily be involved in every step of the execution. Similarly for follow-up visits, it's traditional that patients will come in after they've completed their treatment for cancer, maybe every three months for a couple of years, every six months I can remember patients coming in 10 or more years after their cancer diagnosis still annually for visits. And I'll be honest, those are fun visits for a physician. Those are your successes, and it's a feel-good visit. But is it the most productive use of an oncologist's time, and do you really need an oncologist, or could that care be served better or more efficiently by the primary care physician, freeing up more oncologist's time? Use of virtual medicine and home chemotherapy is a another way to increase the efficiency of an oncology workforce, which is decreasing in, in size in terms of being able to do those visits, still spending time with the patient, but a bit more efficiently and quickly. Now, I think we sometimes overestimate the efficiency to be gained. You're still going to spend the time face-to-face with the patient. And you're still going to be documenting in the chart, but certainly in terms of the space, and we talked a little bit on screening about access to therapy, you don't have a limited number of chemotherapy chairs when you're doing some of the therapies at home. It opens up a much broader population that can be treated. And it also, in theory, an oncologist who is doing virtual visits and supervising chemotherapy at home could even work from home as I am today because what you need is is your, your computer screen and the ability to connect with any of the team that is on site with the patient. So it, it's steps such as these uh, that will increase the efficiency and increase the of the team and increase the availability of care to patients that will, I hope, at least provide some of the solution to the problem.
0: I'm curious what your thoughts are. I mean, you're talking about, you know, shifting some of the, the, tasks, as it were, certain visits to primary care physician or a nurse practitioner. How do you think that's going to go over with with the people who are taking on the work? I mean, if there are, you know, there's a shortage of primary care physicians and they're all of a sudden saying, "Okay, well, now we're expected to do this, too. How do you balance that part of it?
1: That gets back to the overall workforce shortage, and it, I believe, literally becomes part of where are the shortages most severe primary care physicians are certainly challenged they have a lot of responsibilities and you're talking about survivorship care uh, of patients which in some ways could be regarded well i've got to check their cholesterol blood pressure make sure i'm screening for diabetes and now i've got these cancer care survivorship issues so that's something that has to be weighed is this something that they can take on And will the patient be happy with it?
0: This conversation has been so interesting. Um, I always love speaking with you. So Dr. Andrew Hurtler, thank you for joining me today.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: Beth Brosell, and I'm here with some exciting news about HFMA's upcoming annual conference. As you probably already know, this conference is the premier event for healthcare finance professionals. And this year, we're in a new location. Here to give us some highlights is Katie Gilfillan, HFMA's Director of Healthcare Finance Policy and Education. Hi, Katie. Hi, Beth. Great to be with you. So this year, we'll be meeting in Denver, the Mile High City. And that's a really exciting change. And I understand you've got some great speakers lined up. Can you tell us what people can expect?
4: Yes. So we'll be in Denver at the end of June, the 26th through the 29th. And we will be offering both an in-person and virtual option to access a variety of sessions within seven topic tracks and the opportunity to network and learn about healthcare finance solutions. Our theme this year is above and beyond as we take the cost effectiveness of health initiative to new heights, exploring how we can sustainably deliver better health outcomes. That sounds incredible. Can you tell us about some of this year's keynote speakers? Yes, we've got a really great lineup this year. Dr. Karen DeSalvo, she is Chief Health Officer at Google Health and the recipient of the 2022 Richard Clark Board of Directors Award and she will be telling us why her career, which has been focused on improving health and eliminating disparities, led her to Google. Also, Dr. Zeb Neuwirth, he is chief of clinical care transformation and strategy at Atrium Health. He will speak on taking a unique approach to navigating the transition to a more consumer-oriented, value-based healthcare market. And Dr. Kelly Harding... Assistant Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at Columbia University, will be telling us about the science behind kindness and happiness. We also have Joel Zalanekeo. He is a physician and entrepreneur that will challenge us to think differently about the future of health and the intersection of health, technology, and business, understanding the origin of current trends and the implication of recent advances for healthcare. We've also got DJ Vanis, an internationally acclaimed leadership and personal development speaker and author. He will share a unique, powerful perspective from Native American culture on what the warrior role is and what it isn't about and how we can emulate the principles of that role to stay strong, clear, and moving forward through navigating change and disruption and transforming setbacks into opportunities. And we'll also be introducing our new HFMA National Chair, Erin Crane. That's quite a lineup. Thank you so much for all the great information about the upcoming conference. Thank you. And we can't wait to see everyone in the Mile High City in June. Voices in
0: Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy our president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Registration is open for our annual conference. It's taking place June 26th through 29th in Denver. You can take a look at the agenda and speakers by going to our website, hfma.org and clicking education and events. And if you want to reach me or any other member of our podcast team, we would love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at hfma.org.
2: Time out, everybody. We need
1: to start again.